Thank you, Kirk, for reading our scripture. And thank you for being here tonight. We're grateful for this opportunity to sing. And I was thinking as we were singing a moment ago, as we sang about heaven, and that's the goal. And so to be together forever, tremendous thought. We're going to be looking tonight at Colossians 1, verse 18 in our discussion about how to identify the church in the New Testament. And I want to call attention to a number of passages of Scripture. And as we begin our study tonight, I want you to please understand that it's my goal tonight to simply present what the Bible lays out in a very simplistic manner about the church that we can read about in God's Word. And so tonight as we begin that endeavor, I want to raise this question. In a world that is literally filled with thousands of different churches and religious organizations, is it possible to find the church that we read about in the New Testament? Because after all, what God says about the church is of paramount importance. So in a world that is literally filled with thousands of different churches, is it possible for us to put our finger on what the Bible has to say about the church. I want to begin by illustrating it this way. If, perchance, your child were abducted, we would automatically send out an amber alert. That would alert people all across this country certain characteristics about your child. I took the time to just jot down some of the things that would be passed along in an Amber Alert. We would begin with their gender, their race, their height, weight, age, hair color, eye color, and then what about distinctive features? Are there any scars that are evident? Birthmarks. Every child has a certain DNA code. And there are identifiable traits that are unique to your child. Your child might be literally one among thousands. But your child is unique. And that one child can be identified. Another example, if your car were stolen, would it be possible for us to recover that vehicle? What would make it possible for us to find your specific automobile among a sea of automobiles? We would begin by talking about the make of that car or truck. We would speak of the model of that, ve of that vehicle, the year, 
the color, exterior color, interior color, four-door, two-door. And then there is a vehicle identification number, unique to every car. What about distinctive features? Is there any type of special marks, pinstriping, decals, that would help you or help others identify that automobile or truck? Is there anything distinctive about the wheels, the tires? Are there certain marks, dents, that are common and unique to your vehicle? The answer would be yes. So even though your car might be in a parking lot, with thousands of other cars, your car could be identified, couldn't it? Because it is unique. By the same token, even though there are literally thousands of different churches and religious, religious organizations all across America and that are in the world, it is possible for us to, to identify the church revealed in Scripture. So I want to begin tonight by first calling attention to the origination of the church because we have to go back to the very beginning, don't we? When we talk about identifying the church of the New Testament, it would seem fitting to begin with the origin of the church. By way of origination, the church exists according to the right plan. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul, in writing to the saints in Ephesus, talked about how the church exists according to God's eternal plan. You know that God's church is a part, matter of fact, it is part and parcel, to God's redemptive plan. God designed the church in God's God's wisdom is reflected in the fact that the church exists today on earth. So we talk about this divine plan. A divine plan that was born and bred in the mind of God. So the church originated with the right plan, the right purpose, and by the right purpose, or rather by the right person. In Colossians 1 verse 18, the passage that was read just a moment ago, Paul said he is the head of the church, or head of the body of the church, which is the beginning. The word beginning denotes active cause, the source from which something began. What Paul is saying to us is the church began by one person. That's Jesus Christ. And so the church began according to the right plan, the right purpose. It exists in accordance with the right, the right person. You see, Jesus is the one who began the church. Jesus is the one who built the church in Matthew 16, 18. Jesus said to the apostle Peter, and I also say unto you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And so think about it. The church began by Jesus. It was built by Jesus. It was bought by Jesus. In Acts chapter 20, verse 
28, Paul said, Take heed to yourselves, to all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So, scripturally speaking, the church that we're talking about is not a product of human invention, but rather it was born and bred in the mind of God. The church was in no way an afterthought on God's part, but rather it exists according to the right plan. It exists according to the right person, that person being Jesus, who began the church, who built the church, who bought the church, and it belongs to him. Jesus said, I will build my church. That's possessive in nature. And not just possessive, but also singular in nature. And that's important. Because when we think about the identifying traits of the New Testament church, the Bible says there's just one church. And so we live in a day and time when there are multiplied hundreds and thousands of different religious organizations and churches. So out of all those churches, is it possible for us to put our finger on the church that Jesus began, that he built, that he bought, and that belongs to him? And the answer is yes. Now there's another important thing to consider as we talk about the origination of the church. That is, it began at the right place. Isaiah said that the word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 2 and verses 2 through 4, in a very vivid way, talked about the church as an exalted mountain that would be exalted above the hills. And he said, all nations shall flow to it. And many would go and say, come, let us go up to the house of the God of Jacob. For he will teach us his ways and we'll walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The church would begin, as you well know, based on what the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus had instructed the apostles to tarry in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. Luke chapter 24, verse 49. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to the apostles that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Acts chapter 2. The Bible in a very explicit way tells us the church began. Everything up to Acts chapter 2 is pointing to the establishment of this institution. From Acts chapter 2 and going forward, the church is off and running. So Acts chapter 2, we have the birth of the church. Her infancy is detailed in Acts and her growth, incredible growth, recorded all throughout the book of Acts by the pen of Luke. So the church began at the right place. There's another feature. It began at the right period. Isaiah said it would come to pass in the last days, the last days being this last dispensation of time known as the Christian age. With regard to the last days, we are living in the last days, aren't we? Daniel said, and in the days of these kings, that is, during the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven would set up a kingdom 
that would never be destroyed. And note if you would, Daniel said God would be the one to set that kingdom up. Again, underscoring the fact the church, the kingdom, is not of human origin or human invention. But rather it is a result of God in heaven. So we think about the origination of the church. There is another trait that will help us identify the church that we read about in the scriptures. And that is the organization of the church. When you begin to read the New Testament, one of the things that stands out, there is an organizational structure or blueprint for the church. The church exists universally. For example, in Colossians 1 verse 18, Paul said he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Jesus here is identified as the head of the body. And the body is defined as the church, isn't it? So what do you have? You have one head and one body. In Ephesians 1, and 23, the Bible says he put all things in subjection under his feet, made him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So biblically speaking, universally speaking, the church has one head, not two heads and one body, not one head and multiple bodies, but one head and one body. Now, how do I know there's just one body? It's one thing to assert there is one body. It's another thing to prove it. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church, singular. In Ephesians 4, verse 4, Paul said, There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. So, universally speaking, biblically speaking, what do we have? We have one head, that's Jesus Christ. One body, that's the church, correct? So if we see something that resembles something other than one head and one body, what can we conclude? It's not the church of the New Testament, is it? So you have the church universally, but also regionally. The Bible speaks in Galatians chapter 1, verse 2, of the churches of Galatia. In other words, here were churches that existed in a certain locale or in a certain geographical region as depicted in the Bible. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, John talks about the churches of Asia. In chapters 2 and 3, he identifies those churches common to that region. So you have the church universally. You have the church regionally. Are there churches regionally in the Mid-South area? The answer would be yes. There are congregations littered all across this region, aren't there? Is that biblical? Yes, it is. And then you have the church locally. We are a local congregation of God's people, aren't we? The word church means ecclesia, the called out. Those who have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. So when we talk about the local congregation, we understand that the local congregation is made up of elders, deacons, Members or saints? Evangelists? So let me ask this question. Do we have a passage of scripture that would underscore this idea? 
Is there a passage of scripture that would indicate that local congregations were governed in this sense? Well, look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints, every person who has obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ is identified as a saint. A saint is somebody who has obeyed the gospel. They have been set apart from the world unto God. And thus, they belong to God. Those of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ, we're saints. And Paul is writing to people who made up the church in Philippi, and he identified them as saints. And then he says, with the bishops. The bishops would be those who function as overseers, pastors, elders. They meet the criterion laid down in Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7, Titus chapter 1, verse 5 and following. In the New Testament, and by way of the organizational structure of the New Testament church, you always read of a congregation being governed by a plurality of men who function as elders. Acts 14, verse 23, they ordained elders in every church. Paul left Titus in Crete to do what? To ordain elders, those men who met, who met the qualifications set forth by the Holy Spirit in Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Elders have the responsibility of overseeing the church. Their realm of authority exists in matters of expediency. And by the way, every congregation is autonomous in nature. That simply means every congregation is self-ruling or self-governing with the understanding that they are under the chief shepherd who is Jesus Christ who sets forth in his word the blueprint for how the church is to operate and conduct her business. So, we have the saints, the bishops, and then he identifies those individuals who serve as deacons. Deacons are to meet the qualifications set forth by the Holy Spirit in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. They are men who have proven themselves reliable, trustworthy, faithful in the eyes of God and as servants of Christ. And they are special servants. In other words, they have tasks specific to the work of the New Testament church. So locally speaking, when we talk about identifying the church of the New Testament, if we see a church that is, that is governed by a one-man pastor or pastoral system, that can't be the church of the New Testament, can it? Well, why is that? Because the Bible says the church is overseen by a plurality of men who function as overseers. So you have elders, and the elders are under the chief shepherd, 1 Peter chapter 5. You have deacons, you have saints, members, brethren. All of us are saints. We're all members, we're all brethren. And then you have evangelists. 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 5, Paul told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. The evangelist is under the oversight of the elders. The evangelist, the preacher, 
has no authority. And by the way, the authority rests in the eldership, plural, not in any one man, right? That's what the Bible says. So what do we have? The church, universally, regionally, and locally. So if you want to know, okay, can I find the church that I read about in the scriptures? Well, the answer is yes. Well, how would I do that? Well, first, I would begin by looking at the origination of the church. And then I would begin looking at the scriptures, and I would try to decipher the organizational structure of the church. There is a third identifying trait, and that would be the authorization of the church. The church is governed by the authority of Christ, isn't it? In other words, we are to follow the right pattern and we are to engage in the right practices. For example, let me just give you some passages of scripture that will help to underscore this idea. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul said, hold fast the form of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The word form there means pattern, blueprint. And Paul is simply saying that there is a blueprint, a pattern that we can follow as New Testament Christians. In Romans chapter 6, when Paul wrote to the saints in Rome, he said, but God be thanked that though you were the servants of sin, you obeyed from the heart, listen to him, that form of doctrine delivered to you. That form is a pattern. It's a blueprint. And what Paul is saying is there is a blueprint, a pattern, a model that we can follow to know what to do to become his children. Correct? So, the doctrine of Christ. And we are talking about the right pattern. In Acts chapter 2, when the church began on Pentecost Day, it was said in verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. The apostles' doctrine is simply another way of saying the gospel of Christ, the New Testament. That is, that body of information delivered by the Holy Spirit back in the first century. And so they were honoring a pattern, a blueprint. So, there is the right pattern and the right practice. That would entail walking in cadence or in accordance with the teaching of God, wouldn't it? How important is doctrine in the overall scheme of things? Well, John said in 2 John 9, whoever goes onward and abides not in the teaching of Christ, the doctrine of Christ, has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. And the idea here is that we are abiding in the teaching not just about Christ, but the teaching of Christ. Whatever Jesus has said in Scripture, we want to follow, don't we? And the Bible tells us Jesus has all authority. He is the head, we're the body. The body takes instructions from the head. And Jesus said, all power, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. The passage that we use from time to time, I think it's a good passage. We need to underscore it. In Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, 
in the presence of Peter, James, and John, the Bible says, a voice came forth from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he added these words, hear him. That means whatever Jesus says, we need to listen to, don't we? So what about this pattern? In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul said, but if I tarry long, that you may know how to behave or conduct yourself in the house of God, the church of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. Now think about that. Paul's saying, look, I'm writing so that you, that is Christians, can know how to behave or conduct yourselves in God's house. And what did we say about God's house, the church? We said Jesus is the one who began the church. He built the church. He bought the church. It belongs to him. So don't you think that would only make sense that he has the right to legislate the conduct of his divine body? The answer is yes. So when we talk about identifying the church in the New Testament, would it be possible for us to do that? Yes. So would that mean that we don't need any type of manual of faith? Catechism, creed book. We don't need any of that, do we? Why? Because we have the scriptures. And when we talk about the authority of the church, what we're trying to do is get people to ask this question and then answer it. The question is set forth by Paul in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. What does the Bible say? If we would only ask, what does the Bible say, and then answer it with a Bible answer, then we'd be blessed, wouldn't we? If we want to be the church of the New Testament, we've got to go to the New Testament to find out what the Bible has to say about it. Now, there is a, another aspect of the church, and that is the location of salvation in the church. The Bible is very specific about salvation, and the Bible says salvation is exclusively where? In Jesus Christ. Now, in our day and time, it would be viewed as narrow-minded. Some would say bigoted to say that the church belongs to Christ and that if we're going to be saved, we have to be saved according to what Jesus says. And that Jesus is the only one who can save. We live in a world today that has become in many, in many ways, open to any and every idea, philosophy. And there are a lot of people today that will tell you right up front, it really doesn't matter who you believe in, what you believe. Some would say, you know what, I don't have the right to judge about other quote-unquote religions, Islam, Buddha, etc. Well, I want you to listen to what Jesus said. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And Jesus is saying there by way of a definite article that he is the exclusive way, the exclusive truth, and the exclusive life. And no one can come to the Father except going through Jesus Christ. And then you think about Acts chapter 4, verse 12. When Peter and John and the apostles, they said, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What they are saying is if you want to be saved, you've got to be saved 
in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. So salvation is in Christ, right? So here's the question. Can we ascertain from the New Testament what we need to do to become a New Testament Christian and to belong to the church that we read about in the Scriptures? Yes or no? Well, the Bible says first and foremost we must hear the gospel, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So we have to hear the gospel. Faith comes as a result of hearing the word of God. Faith is mandatory because the Bible says without faith it's impossible to be well-pleasing to God, Hebrews chapter 11. Jesus said, except you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins, John 8, 24. Do you mean to tell me that I have to believe that Jesus is the divine son of God? That's exactly right. So we have to hear the gospel, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and then we have to be willing to repent of our sins. On Pentecost Day, Peter set forth the template for what to do to become a child of God. And here's what he said. When they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, you need to repent. Why? Because they had crucified and slain the Son of God, hadn't they? Jesus was put to death under their watch. And so Peter said, you need to repent of your sins. Jesus said, I tell you nay, except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. It is a universal command, Acts chapter 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God winked out, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. So we've got to hear the gospel, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, repent of our sins, and then we have the opportunity to confess with our mouth what we believe in our heart, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, just like the eunuch did in Acts chapter 8, verse 37 when he acknowledged the sonship, the sonship of Jesus Christ. But we're not done. The Bible says in order to become a New Testament Christian, we have to be baptized into Christ Jesus. Now there are a lot of people that want to know why in the world is baptism so important? Well, number one, it's important because God said so. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's what the Son of God said. And by the way, Jesus has all authority. Matthew 28, 18. And God said we're to hear him. So whatever Jesus says, we need to hear, right? So Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Why then do we need to be baptized into Christ? Well, number one, because the Lord said we do. But number two, we've got to contact the blood of Christ. And the only way to appropriate the blood of Christ, which washes away all of our sins, is by being baptized into Christ. In other words, we've got to go where that blood was shed. It was shed in death, John 19, 34 and 35. And the only way that you can contact that blood is by being immersed in water so that your sins might be washed away. Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Know ye not that all we who are baptized into Christ were baptized, listen to him, into his death. So we're baptized into Christ for what purpose? For salvation, Mark 16, 16. For the remission of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. For the washing away of sins, Acts twenty-two sixteen, And so that leads to this conclusion. Salvation is in Christ. That's right, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Salvation is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The only way to get into Christ is to be baptized into Christ. When we're baptized into Christ, we are baptized into the body of Christ. We contact the blood of Christ and we're added to the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul said, by one spirit were you all baptized, listen to him, into one body. So that means, based on what the Bible says, the saved are in the one body. That's exactly right. You mean to tell me I can't be saved outside the church? 
Well, listen to what the Bible says. He is the Savior of the body. Who is that? Jesus, Ephesians 5, verse 23. What's the body? He's the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1, 18. So you have to be in the body to be saved. You have to be in Christ to be saved. If you're in Christ, you're in his church. And you're promised salvation, right? Now, please listen very carefully. There are a lot of people in the world today they would hang with what I'm saying in talking about hearing the gospel, believing in Jesus, repenting of sin, confessing the name of Christ, but when it comes to the importance of New Testament baptism, they would say, you know what, you got it all wrong. Look, unless we tell people exactly what the Bible tells them to do, they're not New Testament Christians. They're not members of the church that we read about in Scripture, are they? Well, how do I know that? Because that's what the Bible says. And what was it Paul said? What does the Bible say? What do the Scriptures say? The Scriptures are what tell us what we must do to become a child of God. Don't you think we ought to consult what Jesus said, what Paul said, what Peter said when it comes to our salvation? And you think about all the people in our world today that have been told, if you want to be a Christian, here's what you need to do. You need to put your faith and trust in Jesus, accept him into your heart, and then recite this prayer. I want to challenge you lovingly, kindly with these words. Show me in the Bible. That's what, that's what Scripture says. Show me one example in Scripture where a person accepted Jesus into their heart, recited the sinner's prayer, and was saved. We're talking about identifying the New Testament church. There are a lot of quote-unquote churches. But I want to be a member of the church that I can read about in the Bible. I want to be a Christian. I want to be a member of the church that Jesus began, that he built, that he bought, and that it belongs to him. It's just that simple. There's a fourth thing. I know our time's gone. And that is descriptions of the church. When we talk about the New Testament church, would it be possible for us to identify collectively those who belong to the church? Are there some biblical names that are used to identify God's people in a collective sense? Well, the answer is yes. In the American Standard Version, 1901, and by the way, that is probably the most literal translation, it is most literal translation of the Greek and Hebrew. In that version of the Bible, the word church is found 95 times. The kingdom of God is found 68 times. The kingdom of heaven, 32 times. So when we talk about the collective group of people that belong to the Lord, they are identified in Scripture as members of the church, members of the kingdom of God, members of the kingdom of heaven. The Bible speaks of the churches of Christ, Romans chapter 16, verse 16. And by the way, Alexander Campbell did not start the church of Christ. Paul knew about the church of Christ long before Alexander Campbell ever came on the scene. Alexander Campbell wasn't born until the late 1700s. Wasn't a Christian until the 1800s, and the church had already been in existence for nearly 18 centuries. 
So I can read about the church, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the churches of Christ. I can read about the church of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Those are biblical names. So when I begin searching for the church of the Bible, don't you think that I ought to, that I ought to just step back and say, okay, what, what does the sign out front say? Church, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, churches of Christ, churches of God, scriptural names. And then individually, are there terms that are used to describe those of us who belong to the body of Christ? Well, the answer is yes. For example, in Acts chapter 5, verse 14, the Bible speaks of those of us who have obeyed the gospel as believers. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, we are identified as disciples. In Acts chapter 9, verse 2, we are called followers of the way. In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, we are called Christians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, we are identified as saints. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, the Bible speaks of us as brethren. We are, as Peter said, people of like precious faith. So, the descriptions that are used in Scripture help us to find the church that we read about where? In the Bible. I want to close by saying this. If you were to pick up the yellow pages tonight, and I know that the yellow pages are probably archaic by now. But if you were to pick up a copy of the yellow pages, you would read of any number of different churches scattered throughout the Mid-South. The question is not, can we find our church in the yellow pages? The question is, can we find our church in the Bible? Because really, that's all that matters, isn't it? So what's our plea? Our plea is to strive to the best of our ability to follow the Bible. If we do what they did in the first century, wouldn't it stand to reason that we become what they were? And what was that? New Testament Christians, members of the church, members of the body of Christ, members of the church of Christ, members of the church of God. And in closing, if you were to have asked somebody on Pentecost Day, what church do you belong to? What would they have said? What would they have said? They'd say, I'm just a member of the church. I, I don't know any other church, just the church. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the church of Christ, the church of God. I'm just a Christian. I'm just a disciple. I'm just a believer. I'm a brother. I'm a sister in Christ. I know I've used more than my allotted time, and I apologize for going so long. But I appreciate the opportunity to share what the Bible says about the church. And what we're talking about is important because our soul depends on whether or not we're in the church that we read about in Scripture. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you haven't done what they did in the first century, won't you do what they did? Just be baptized into Christ, rising to walk in newness of life, let God add you to the church, be faithful till death, the promise being the crown of life. If you're here tonight, you're unfaithful, would you not come home? God will abundantly pardon, 1 John 1, verse 9, as we stand and sing.